Um, Picasso painted this after Hitler began taking over the countries around him. Expectations, a little bit different at that point in time. We're entering into the second half of Daniel. Okay. The fun half of Daniel. Okay. Um, there is a verse at the end of, um, kind of in the middle of Daniel 12. Don't turn to it now, but you can go home and read it. And um, Daniel basically, at the end of all his visions and dreams and interpretations and everything else, basically says, and I didn't understand it, and I don't get it. So if Daniel doesn't get it and Daniel doesn't understand it, how are we supposed to get it or understand it? I really don't know, okay? Um, But a couple of things. We are... um, We are in the middle of opening up a whole new genre of scripture, okay? Um, A genre that we call the apocalyptic literature, Um, Apocalyptic literature is a little bit like deciphering a poem, okay? Um, I do not know poems very well. Um, There's only one that I ever bothered to memorize, and that's that one about the, you know, the fog being brought in on little cat's feet. Have anybody ever seen cats bring fog in? Okay. And yet there's something, there's a picture that is trying to be painted there, a, a sense of emotion, that, that we're to kind of get hold of about how the, the fog just kind of rolls in and takes over things, okay? When we read apocalyptic literature, we're not always called to be able to accurately pinpoint every single thing as if it were a literal statement. In a sense, we're much more supposed to take a look at what is being painted before us, what the... the, the in a sense, the curtain is being pulled back and, and we're given a chance to see what's going on behind the scenes, but we're giving a picture of what's going on behind the scenes rather than a, an accurate, you know, newspaper article of events that are going on behind the scenes. And so as we go through apocalyptic literature and as we read these next couple of chapters, the first half of Daniel is very narrative. Okay, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened half, is going to explain what's going on behind the narrative. As we um, look at a popular literature, we need to be um, cautious. Um, all too often when we've misused apocalyptic literature, the church has lost out. Um, one of the books that I remember reading when I was a sophomore in high school, couldn't put it down, Late Great Planet Earth. Anybody else read that book? Okay. I mean, it told you exactly what was going on in Daniel, including the fact that the ten horns were the European Commonwealth, or the common, I mean, the economic union, okay, in Europe. Okay. Um, There are others who have told you, like Martin Luther, that the Antichrist was the Pope, the one that we had way back when. Okay. Not the one we have today. We oftentimes want to take symbols and times and put people in places and say, this is what's going to happen. And when we do that, 
we get ourselves more often than not in trouble. Okay? And when we do that, we lose our credibility with people. And so we need to be cautious as we open up these scriptures and say, this is exactly what's going on and this is exactly what it means. Um, we need to especially watch, watch numbers. numbers. Um, oftentimes they're symbolic. Okay? And everybody has different interpretations even of what those symbols mean. Okay? Um, one of the ones, for example, today um, is we talk about there's one symbol in here that talks about three and a half years. Okay? Um, one of the commentaries I, I, I read was, you know, in a sense, three and a half is half of seven, which is the perfect number. And it basically means, you know, kind of, if seven is eternally and perfect, three and a half is a short time that's not complete yet. Um, but symbols. We need to always read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. One of the things that, that you've probably heard me say more than once is that I really would love for all of us to be on some type of Bible reading plan where you, every so many years, read through the entirety of Scripture. Because it's only as you have this picture of the entirety of Scripture and read it once and then read it again, and then on your third time through, probably about six or seven years down, you begin to read something in Jeremiah, and you go, oh, that's what Paul meant when he was talking in Thessalonians. See? Oh, that's what Revelation meant and was referring to. That's why we have a sacrifice. That's why the Holy of Holies is called the Holy of Holies. It, 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 unless you understand the New Testament and then the full scope of the Old Testament and then are able to read the New Testament into the Old Testament, you can't really understand what God is saying in the fullness of what he's saying. And he wants all of us to get there, but it takes discipline and it takes time. We need to read scripture in light of the rest of scripture and especially from the New Testament back. Okay. Um, and then finally, it might look like evil is in control. And this is the overarching lesson today. It might look like evil is in control. But actually, God is in control. And so the call is to stay faithful. Now, let's go back to expectations. Um, Daniel has been um, you know, taken off as a little kid when he was you know, probably in his teenage years someplace, taken into Babylon. And in Babylon, he is um, brought up with all of the ways of Babylon, and he's put in Nebuchadnezzar's court, and he begins to interpret dreams for Nebuchadnezzar. And eventually Nebuchadnezzar gets the picture, right? And Nebuchadnezzar basically goes, wow, the God of Daniel is the one God. His kingdom's eternal. He's over everything. And and he's out in the wilderness when that happens and it says that God restores him because he's come to his right mind and recognized who God is. And I can imagine at that point, Daniel's feeling pretty good. Wow, God's working. Wow, things are going to go okay for my people now. Nebuchadnezzar gets that my people worship the one true God. This is good. Maybe God's using me. He's been using me in, the, you know, in Nebuchadnezzar's life, and now it's going to be okay for my people. And then something happens. Nebuchadnezzar dies. 
And we move from chapter 3 to chapter 4. And with the death of Nebuchadnezzar, there's another king that comes up, Belteshazzar. He doesn't want to pay any attention to God. In fact, what he does is he goes and gets the goblets from the temple and uses them for his parties. He basically looks God in the face and says, who are you? Looks at the handwriting on the wall and says, so what? You know, he will pushes Daniel aside. And I can imagine at that point, Daniel going, God, what happened? Nebuchadnezzar was getting it. And now we got... Have you ever gone, God, what's going on? I thought things were getting better. And it's at that point that Daniel has a dream. And it's like at that point, God pulls back the curtain and says, Daniel, let me show you what's going on. Okay. Now, one of the questions that you had in your book, just back it up just a, a, a little bit further, um, is how this division in Daniel kind of occurs and why it occurs here. Um, it's almost like we have two halves of the book of Daniel. The first half, verses 1 to 6, God speaks to everybody besides his people. He speaks to the nations out there. He speaks to the Nebuchadnezzars and the Babylonians and, and everybody else, hoping that they'll come to know Jesus. We, we talked about how, in a sense, this is the beginning of the, the Gentiles coming to know Jesus. The first six books, six chapters, narrative, talking to people out there. Seven to 12, now, everything changes. Now, God is talking to his people. Now, he's saying, this is what's going on behind the scenes. See? Not, this is who I am. It's now, this is what I'm doing type of stuff. And so you have narrative, first six chapters, and then apocalyptic literature, last half the book. But there's something else that's absolutely fascinating about what's going on here. Can I have that very first slide? Um, if you will remember, chapter one of Daniel is written in Hebrew. In chapter 2, there's this little footnote in your Bible that basically says that from chapters 2 through 7, it's written in Arabic. Different language. It's as if chapters 2 through 7 form their own little unit. In fact, it's really kind of a concise little unit. All right. um, in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And it's this dream about these four kingdoms and, you know, this little stone or this statue, you know, and this little stone. And in chapter 3, what happens? Daniel's friends get thrown into the furnace. In chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar gets chased out into the wilderness, comes to his senses, realizes that God is God, begins to worship God, turns to God. He sees God and responds positively in worship. In chapter 5, Belteshazzar sees God and basically continues to thumb his nose at God. In chapter 6, Daniel is thrown to the lions. 
And in chapter 7, Daniel has a dream. Okay? It's kind of that chasmic outline that we've talked about every now and then. In that outline, what really becomes important is what is found in the very middle of the chapter, in the middle of the, of the outline. What really is important in chapters 2 through 7 is the question, what are you going to do with God? Are you going to see him and worship him? Or are you going to thumb your nose at him? That is the question that is being asked over and over and over again. What are you going to do with God? Will you open your eyes and see God? And so it's kind of this nice little section. Now, chapter 7, at one sense, is the conclusion of that nice little section. At the, in another sense, it's kind of the beginning of this second half of, of narrative. Um, I don't know how Daniel got together, got put together in the first place. Um, one little piece of, I don't know, Bible history that probably is important to know. Daniel did not sit down one day and God say, okay, Daniel, take this down and start dictating chapters 1 to 12 to Daniel. Okay? God did not sit down one time and say to Isaiah, Isaiah, take this down. Instead, what happens is that after the nation of Israel comes back from exile, Ezra, the priest, starts collecting all the writings of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel. All the writings about the kings and about David and the Psalms and the Proverbs of Solomon. And he begins to compile them into what we call the Old Testament canon. Okay? And it's absolutely rather miraculous how Really, it all fits together when it was written over such a long period of time by so many different authors. And in a sense, I think we see that with Daniel here. Okay? We see these writings of Daniel being put into an orderly fashion in a book, but that are probably written at a couple of different times that are put together in one book. Okay? But the issue gets to be it all kind of fits together and God is able to take all of that and use it and miraculously it fits in with the whole rest of the Bible and what we find in the New Testament especially. Okay, um, And so you have kind of this Arabic section and then this apocalyptic section that kind of overlap together. What we're really going to see here is we're going to see Daniel's dreams that talk about what is yet to come. And one dream is going to build on another dream that's going to build on another dream. And Daniel's going to go, I really don't get it. But this we do get. We get the fact that things aren't always getting better. In fact, if our expectation is that because Nebuchadnezzar knew Jesus or knew God and worshipped God, that Belteshar should do the same thing, that is a false expectation. Because in reality, one evil government is going to be founded, followed by another evil government that's going to be followed by another evil government that's going to be followed by another evil government. And it's going to continue 
over and over and over and over again. And we can kind of talk about, you know, it is possible to name names as you go down through here. Um, in fact, let's, you know, in, in the first year of Beldasaur, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream. His visions passed through his mind as he was laying on his bed and he wrote down the substance of the dream. Daniel said, in my vision at night, I looked and before me were four winds of heaven curing up the great sea. Now the great sea, um, sea is, is always kind of a sign for chaos in the Old Testament and, and even in, in the New Testament. Okay. Um, there's a sense in, in Babylonian literature and in, in really it, it, it's it's kind of fun to see how all this fits together between the Babylonian literature and, and even the creation narratives in our scriptures. You know, in the beginning it says, you know, there was nothing, you know, according to our script. Let me read this better. I'm In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the deep. And the spirit of God hovered over the waters. Even there, there is this sense of this darkness and these deep waters. And out of that, God created the earth. And he created animals in their kind. And he created man good. And everything was good. But in the Babylonian myth narratives, or the Babylonian creation narratives, it actually talks about how there was these, this sea, and in the middle of the sea there were these animals that fought against these gods that fought against each other and there was chaos you know and rather than good coming out of the chaos evil comes out of the chaos our scriptures tell us that God wants to bring good out of the darkness in fact it's fascinating that in the Genesis account, everything moves from darkness to light. There's night and there's day of day one and there's narc- and there's day of day two. And everything goes from darkness to light. In a sense, Daniel has this vision of a sea of chaos. And this vision of these four great beasts, each different from the other, coming up out of the sea. And rather than each of these beasts being of their own kind, they're all hybrids. See? In fact, it's fascinating because, you know, Genesis does say, and God created each in their own kind. And then in Deuteronomy, he says, whatever you do, don't intermix things. But what we see here is an intermixing. The first was a lion with the wings of an eagle. Jeremiah refers to Nehemiah as a lion with the wings of eagles. And I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted out of the ground so that it stood in two feet like a human being when the mind of a human was given to it. And some people actually take that and almost look at that chapter 3 incident where where, um, Nebuchadnezzar goes out 
into the wilderness until he finally comes to his senses and is given back to the kingdom. And then before me, a second beast, which stood like a bear. It was raised on its sides and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth and was told, get up and eat your fill. It's almost like here's this bear that's just gotten up from one dinner and he's looking for his next. He's this ravenous beast that can't get enough of evil. That just wants more and more and more. And is that not what we often see with evil? A bear is violent and aggressive and ravious. And he can't get enough. Have you ever found people who just can't get enough of seeking revenge on somebody? Have you ever sensed even in your own self that sense of hostility that so much wants to wipe something out beyond even what's appropriate? It's what evil does to us. And after that, I looked and there was another beast, one that looked like a leopard and on its back had four wings. And some people look at that and say, oh, well, that's obvious. That's Alexander and his four generals. I don't have the slightest idea. But a leopard is cunning and swift and stealth and comes out of the middle of no place. And oftentimes, evil is cunning and swift and stealth. And after that, in my vision, I looked, and there before me were a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. And it had iron teeth, and it crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. If you remember our passages in Revelation, you know, a third of the earth was destroyed, and then another third, and then another section of the earth was destroyed. And it's kind of like here you have, and there's destruction, and there's destruction, and now whatever's left is being destroyed. And it was different than the former beast. It had ten horns. Now, you know what? I can point to ten kingdoms too. The ten kingdoms of Alexander's generals and the little horn that comes up and basically tries to, you know, who we talked about last week, who who, um, offers the sacrifice in the temple and tries to change the laws of the Jewish people. And it's very easy to look and pinpoint all of these beasts between Babylon and the Roman Empire. But I actually think that's too simple. Because I think these beasts continue to repeat themselves over and over again. And we're not so much to pinpoint who all of these people are, but to recognize that evil exists. To recognize that what is going on in this world is this cosmic battle between good and evil. And it's been going on since the beginning of creation. And rather than having the expectation that everything was going to be San Gabriel Valley, snow-capped mountains, we need to understand that really we live in a world that is filled with cunning and swift 
evil that never gets its fill. And while I was thinking about the horns before me, there was another horn, a little one that came up among them, like the first horn, and he uprooted them. And this horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. And then we see a second scene. And then I saw thrones set in place. And the ancient of days, the creator God, the pure, wise, good, ageless God. His clothing was white as snow. It's the purity. The hair of his head was white like wool, the wisdom. And his throne was flashing with fires. His wheels were all ablaze. It's Ezekiel, right? And, and a river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. And if you remember, fire is a symbol of purification and judgment. And thousands upon thousands attend him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. And the court was seated and the books were op- opened. And what Daniel sees is here is all of these evil monsters. And then he sees this courtroom scene with books open. And one who has all power and is all wise and is all pure sitting down. And I continued to watch because of the boastful words of the horn was speaking. And I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. It's as if all of a sudden, after all of these, all of this ability to ravage and cause so much evil, God just intervenes. And he's destroyed. And the other beasts, having been stripped of their authority, were allowed to live for a period of time. And in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the ancient days, and he was led into his presence, and he was given all authority and glory and sovereign power over all nations, and all the people of every language worship him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And who is that? In fact, when Jesus, talking about boastful little horns and courtroom scenes, is standing before the high priest on the night of his trial before his crucifixion, it was the high priest who was boastful. It was the high priest who thought he had the upper arm and told Jesus where to get off. And it is at that point that Jesus looks at the high priest and says, you will see me coming on the clouds. Jesus' favorite title for himself was that of the Son of Man. And Jesus went to his death on a cross, and at that point, Satan's power was destroyed as he was resurrected the last enemy, death, was put underneath his feet and he was given all power and his authority. And yet, for a period of time, the other beasts are allowed to live because God has not finished the process of bringing all the nations to him. 
We are still in a cosmic battle. But we are told what the end of that battle is going to be like. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions had passed through my mind, disturbed me, and I approached one standing there and asked, what is the meaning of all this? He told me and gave me an interpretation. He said, the four beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth, but the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. In a sense, that's the summary verse right there. That's what it's all about. At this point, it looks like evil is winning, but the day is going to come when the people of God are going to receive the kingdoms of the world. Who are the people of God? Who are the people of God? We are being brought up to rule forever and ever with God. Our destiny is not evil. Our destiny is to rule in God's kingdom forever. And then I want to know the meaning of the fourth verse, which was different from the others and most terrifying. It had iron teeth and bronze claws, and the beasts that crushed and devoured victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before and that three of them fell and the horn that looked more imposing than the others. And as I watched, that horn was waging war against the holy people. And what was he doing? He was defeating them. There are times when it will look like evil is winning and we will be defeated. There are people today who are being persecuted and dying because of their worship of Jesus. He was defeating them until the ancient day came and pronounced judgment and favor upon his holy people, the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. And he gave me this explanation, the fourth beast is the fourth kingdom that will appear on earth and it will turn and it will be different from all the other kingdoms and it will devour the whole earth and trample down, crushing it. And the ten horns and the kings who came from that kingdom. And after that, another king will rise, different from the earlier ones, and he'll subdue the three kings. And he'll speak out against the Most High and oppress his people and try to change the times and the laws. How often do people try to change the ways of God and the law of God? And the holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time and times and half a time. Short time compared to eternity. A short time that's controlled and known and yet for a time. For the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed. And then the sovereign power and the greatness of the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of God, the Most High, and his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. Who gets the kingdoms? We do. What's our destiny? To reign forever with God. And then it says, but Daniel awoke from that dream, and I was deeply troubled by my thoughts, and my face turned pale. John Stott preached a sermon. I love the internet. Preached a sermon the first Sunday in January of 1981. And he used this as his text. He basically stood before his congregation. He said, I don't know what this year is going to hold. But I know two things. On the one hand, evil is going to increase. 
and we're going to be fighting evil. And on the other hand, there is a throne that is sitting over everything, and he is in complete control. And in the end, he wins. And he basically looked at his congregation and said, as you go into this year, you need to keep both scenes in front of you. You need to not be surprised by the evil that will come your way. You need to not be surprised that you will be persecuted. You will not be surprised that people will try and change the laws of God, that you will be trampled underfoot. But at the same time, you need to not be naysayers and discouraged and defeated. Because there is a throne. And one who sits on the throne who is establishing his kingdom forever and ever and ever, and he wins. And in the midst of all that's going on, he is working. And he says it's all too easy to either be on the one side of naysayers or to be on the other side of God's in control and not be realistic about what's going on. And he says we need to keep both perspectives. Peter in his second letter towards the very end writes these words. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the commands given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come. Like little horns? Hmm. Scoffing and following their own evil's desires. They'll say, where's this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as if it was at the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forgot that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed of the waters, out of the waters and by the waters. By the waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By that time, by that same word, the present heavens and earth were reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Sound a little bit like Daniel? But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, the day, one day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting that anyone should perish, but that everyone should come to repentance. Why does God allow evil to continue to exist? Because he is patient. Because if there's just one more who will come to a relationship with him, he will hold off so that one will come to know him. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will disappear for war and the elements will be destroyed by fire and everything and, and, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you be? Since we're going into this year with this vision of both evil and God's throne, what type of people should we be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. 
as you look forward to the day of God. The day of your day will bring about destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But keeping his promise, we're to be looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. So then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless and blameless and at peace with him. Bear in mind our Lord's patient means salvation. Just as our brother Paul also wrote. What did Paul write? Paul wrote this. Bless those who persecute you. Bless, don't curse. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Do not repay evil for evil, but be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. Do not take revenge, but leave room for God's wrath. It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him food to drink. In doing so, you'll heap burning coals upon his head. We live in the midst of the beasts. But the curtain's been thrown back. And we see that there's one who sits on a throne. And he is in complete control. And he is all times set in his hands. And he is bringing about a kingdom that will be given to us. But in the meantime, we are called to live as people who are pure and spotless and love our enemies and trust in him. There's um, go through the slides for a minute. Um, next slide. Keep going. We need to stand in readiness to be battled. We not, need to not be dispri- surprised, not defeated. We need to encourage one another. Keep going. God has not abandoned his people to the will of their oppressors. Those who remain faithful to the end will share in the consummation of God's sovereign purposes. The end is now near. Where are you being called to be faithful and pure? Let's go to the next one. Keep. You're gonna, we're going to talk about this later. Next one. Keep going. Next one. Next one. That's one. Takeaways. Change your expectations. Take a look at your expectations. Makes all the difference in how you make decisions. Remember Romans 12 and first and second Peter 3. And how does all of this change the way we pray? If I know that there's going to be wars and rumors of wars and more wars. If that's what I've been told, I might not pray for peace as much as I pray that I have the ability to stand up and be strong in the midst of it all. How does all this change what we pray for and how we pray? We're going to see that in Daniel too. And then always remember there's a throne. As I went through this passage, um, there's one song that came to mind that I heard 
um, years ago. Um, and I want to end with that. And we're going to stand and we're going to kind of sing it together. Words are going to be up on the screen. Um, but I think it's, it's kind of a fighting song. And, and I want to go out with this song. So let me pray and then we'll go to the song. So um, Lord, um, help us be realistic. Help us make our lives about overcoming, about being faithful, about being your servants in the place that you have planted us, even when everything seems to go wrong. May we keep an eye on you, ever aware that you are in control and that you reign. Come, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.